so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC Podcast. This week's episode features a panel about same-sex attraction from influential Christian voices. What about those who would say, and we have, we have several in the evangelical movement, who would describe themselves as gay Christians. They're celibate, but chaste. They're not uh, actively involved in, in any uh, form of sexual immorality. They, they agree with the biblical teaching, church's teaching on sexuality and marriage, but they, they want to use that language of gay Christian for a variety of reasons. How should we respond to that? Is that a, a good thing? Is it something we ought to be concerned about, or is it something that we ought to just... I don't like it. You don't like it? Why not? No. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm a blaspheming Christian. It's just, I, I don't know how one, one title that represents that I glorify God can be coupled with a title that, of sin that God hates. It's just, it's just weird. I feel like I would want to be titled in a way that truly represents that God gets all of the glory from my life. Is it okay to be gay? It's an important question that Christians must answer, and one that Russell Moore, Rosaria Butterfield, Jackie Hill Perry, Christopher Yuan, and Sam Alberry discussed on a panel at the 2014 National Conference titled, Is It Okay to Be Gay? A Candid Conversation on Christians and Same-Sex Attraction. We hope you benefit from this insightful conversation. Welcome a panel of folks here today to talk about issues of same-sex attraction. Uh, many of the people on the panel you've already uh, been introduced to, but I will uh, reintroduce them at least uh, briefly. Uh, we have Christopher Yuan, who just spoke uh, a few moments ago, who's an author and a speaker and uh, Moody Bible Institute uh, professor. Next to him is Rosaria uh, Butterfield, who is also an author and a speaker. She's the author of uh, Confessions of an Unlikely uh, Convert. We talked about a new edition of that is, is out Sam Albury, who is the author of the book, Is God Anti-Gay? Uh, and Sam is a pastor, associate pastor at St. Mary's Maidenhead Church in Berkshire, United Kingdom. Glad to have you with us, Sam. And then Jackie Hill Perry, who was just with us a few moments ago, spoken word poet. And I wanted to have uh, each of these people here because they have different stories, but all of them uh, have lived in a gay and lesbian uh, context, and all of them are Christians who believe what the Bible teaches about marriage and, and sexuality uh, and so forth. And so we wanted to have a conversation about what this looks like in terms of discipleship. And I'd like to start really with you, Sam, and to talk about this issue. Uh, you're single. And uh, one, of the, one of the questions that I hear people ask, I was in fact just asked it this morning, is if we say to someone who's same-sex attracted and who says, what do, I, what do I do, how do I follow Christ? If the answer to that for that person is singleness and celibacy, 
doesn't that cause mental health harm to that person? And isn't that unfair? Other people get married, other people have companionship. And so how, 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 do you, how would you answer that question? Thank you. That's a question I get a lot these days. I think that the first thing I'd want to say, we, we've touched on it already in the conference, is that the most complete, fully human person who ever lived was Jesus Christ, and he was single. So if we're saying a sexual relationship is intrinsic to humanity, we're saying that our saviour was not fully, fully human. Mm. So that's the first thing to say. I think it, the, the question almost makes an idolatry out of a sexual partnership of some kind, because it is saying a life without sex is no life that's going to be bearable. Mm. So I think we need to give the lie to that. Um, we need to look at what the Bible says about singleness being a good thing, being a gift. I think we need to work hard in our, our church cultures to make sure um, there are places where the prospect of long-term singleness is viable, where we are um, expressing the kind of community that Rosario was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing I want to say is it, we're not the ones saying that sex is everything. And my concern is that a culture that says you are your sexuality, sexual fulfillment is the key to human fulfillment, I want to turn around and say, well, actually, I think that is putting more pressure on young minds and, and lives than anything we're saying. Mm. You know, I had a, a woman say to me one time, she was same-sex attracted woman coming out of a, a lesbian background. She said, I believe what the Bible teaches. I want to follow Christ. She said, but I know that means I'm just going to die alone in a house full of cats. <laughs> you know, uh, I think that that is a deficiency within the church. Uh, and so how do we in churches give a different picture of, of singleness? And not just for, not just as it relates to this issue, but, but more broadly, uh, for, for anyone on the panel. How, how do we, how do we start to do that? Especially when, if you look at most pastors who are leading, uh, congregations, if you just look at it demographically, most of them are married. And so, uh, sometimes they don't even feel competent to speak to issues of singleness or, or as one pastor said to me one time, it almost feels awkward for me to talk about singleness since I'm not single, and so I don't really feel like I have anything to say about it. How, how would you start with that? I, I think one thing that we have to really understand is what the gift of singleness means. I think um, I'm 44 years old. I'm single as well, like Sam. And the majority of my Christian single friends who are not gay, who don't experience same-sex attractions, did not choose their singleness. So there's a huge misunderstanding that the gift of singleness, or singleness must be something that's chosen. Then it can be mm. fair. But I think what can help us is to look at when Paul calls singleness a gift, he's not saying it, calling it a present. He's not using the Greek word doron, a, a regular gift. He calls it a charisma. Mm. which actually more accurately should be translated a spiritual gift. And that then enlightens us to understand what this means. Spiritual gifts are not chosen. Spiritual gifts have many challenges. The other spiritual gifts that we see um, that Paul lists, uh, prophecy. Many of the Old Testament prophets did not want their gift, but mm. that was the gift that God bestowed upon them. Uh, and there were consequences for them not um, kind of, 
fulfilling and, and utilizing that gift. So I think that really helps us. And, and also, I think Barry Danilak did a lot of writing on, on singleness, and, and I think that's really helpful. I think we need to look at that. He, he wrote a book, Redeeming Singleness, but something before that he wrote was this little pamphlet, and in it he talked about how, the, how we have to see the, the movement of Scripture from the Old Testament, the people of God grew through procreation. In the New Testament, the people of God did not grow by procreation, but by regeneration. So the focus is upon the church. Um, and, and I think that, that, is, that is what we need to, to see. So what would you all say to leaders in a church who are trying to make a church a, a better place for people who are gifted with singleness to kind of keep the... Uh, sort of attitude within the congregation of, uh, I think, Rosario, you mentioned it uh, this morning, of, of constantly someone who is single is someone who needs to be fixed up with someone uh, or, or, or needs to be fixed, that there's something wrong. How do you do that without turning the singles in the congregation into projects? Come look at John here. He's single. Leave him alone. He doesn't want to be set up with a girl. You know? uh, how, how, do you, how do you create that sort of culture Without without turning people into into set pieces, or, or, or sometimes men could be uh, dangerous if they're single, mm. because once they're married, then they're not dangerous. Right. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, you had mentioned the pastor who feels uncomfortable. Yeah, um, it, it might be somewhat conduct unbecoming for the pastor's wife on the panel to suggest that that pastor ought to repent of the sin of using personal experience as a barometer for his, uh, his way of being with other people. Yeah. You know, the biggest, one of our big dangers, I, 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 you know, the, we talked this morning about the starvation diet in our churches. And I think one of the reasons that they are there is that the leaders feel perfectly justified hunkering down in sociological categories and then finding fault when other people do the same. Mm. What makes us brothers and sisters in Christ is justifying faith sanctifying grace and repentance unto life. That's what makes us safe one to another. That's what makes us uh, capable of loving one, one another. Jackie mentioned 1 Corinthians 10, 13, mm -hmm. that you will always have a way of escape. What if that's your house? I'm really serious. What if this Lord's Day, that way of escape is your house? That way mm. of escape from pornography, from someone you love, is your house. But you're too busy. Are you not in some way culpable? Hmm. I think that we need to have a more shared, brotherly and sisterly um, identification with one another's sinful condition that exceeds these sociological categories. Hmm. So woe to the pastor who is, who is feeling that way. Hmm. But if you repent... I trust that your, your world and your church will be a much safer place for all of us. Mm -hmm. It isn't just singles who feel the starvation diet, mm -hmm. but they feel it acutely. That's good. But Jackie, you did mention First Corinthians ten thirteen. Some people, when they read that, they, they get to that way of escape, yeah. and they assume this is a one-time exit. I'm yeah. out of it. And now it's over with, and now I can move on to the next thing in my life. Yeah. And you're, you're talking about something dramatically different yeah. than that. So what about that person who believes the gospel but who experiences persistent same-sex attraction and who says, I'm just, I can't escape this. Yeah. You know, you're counseling that young woman or that young man that comes to you. How should a pastor or a leader or a women's ministry, a leader or anybody else here, 
how should that person counsel that person about what, how do you know when there's repentance mm-hmm. and what's temptation and what's uh, falling back into a pattern of sin? How, how do you sort all that out? Yeah, I'm not as smart as these people here, but um, <laughs> I got some years to go. But um, I, I really, I don't know per se. I know typically if a lot of people will come to me and say, I'm just dealing with these temptations. I'm dealing with these t- temptations. And there's such this, this discouragement. And I really believe it's because they've just forgotten that there is hope available. Like I, I was talking to this young girl a couple months ago and she was like, crying and stuff like that i was like why are you crying and she said because i just keep i was like are you consisting in the sin like are you acting out on it she was like no it's just in my mind and i was like well i understand that i was like but you're like a person in a desert who's really discouraged that they're thirsty when it's an ocean next door it's just like they're just walk to it you know what i'm saying And there is joy in knowing that man i have a God who's there and available to help me. Um, and there's practical things. I think just focusing on Jesus so much can dissipate these thoughts um, and these wrong affections that we may have. I think sometimes people get in a situation where they just dwell on the sin and they dwell on the fact that I want that so bad where they've forgotten to actively fight against how they're feeling. And so that's the encouragement I would give. Mm. Um, just like just that whole casting vision thing. Like, do you remember Jesus? Did he die? Did he give you the Holy Spirit? Did he provide you with his church? Remember that and do what you need to do. And don't dwell on the fact that you're human. Hmm. I think you know? I, would, I would add that there's a bit of arrogance that says, I'm facing a kind of temptation no one else has ever faced. There's, hmm. you know, it's, everyone else has got a way out, but, but not me. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that kind of thinking comes from the pit. Hmm. So uh, we need to remind ourselves that we do experience temptation, but God enables us to stand under it and to say my situation is I'm the first person ever mm-hmm. who's experienced this level of temptation so the rules are different for me that's that's actually arrogant but don't you think we've done a really poor job in the church and forget this issue for a minute I mean just on in all the issues that we face uh, that we have not given people an understanding of what the Christian life looks like as a constant constant putting to death of self and being uh, made alive in Christ. I remember one time it wasn't dealing with this issue, it was dealing with something else, but I had a guy who came in, I tell this story all the time because I think about it every day. He came in and said, I'm going to hell, I think. And I said, why? He said, because every single day I'm just fighting and wrestling against apostasy. And I said, well, me too. <laughs> and he said, no, you don't understand. He said, I'm, I'm right. He's, I'm just right, ready just to renounce the faith and just become an unbeliever every minute of my life. I said, me too. <laughs> and he said, you just don't understand. He said, if, if somebody could prove to me the bones of Jesus are in the grave in the Middle East, I would leave here right now and get as drunk as I could get and take every drug I could find. I said, me too. <laughs> and, the, you know, the, the Bible says that's what we ought to do if Christ has not been raised. Um, kind of, but I said, do you believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead? He said, yeah, that's why I'm in. And I realized at that moment, the problem with him was that he assumed that everybody else is living this life of tranquility. So when he's dealing with this anger and rage or when he's dealing with whatever else he's dealing with and it's this, this constant, he thinks everybody else is kind of humming hymns to themselves. 
in their minds all the time. And so I think we've really contributed to that, and it plays out in this particular situation, but I think it's much broader than that, of having an understanding of what it means to live uh, as, as human beings in a fallen world. Can I say something? Yeah. Um, yeah, I've seen that a lot, um, just in certain churches that focus on deliverance a lot without mm-hmm. defining deliverance. And a lot of people look at deliverance in this world through, like, the absence of temptation, kind of what you talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I always try to remind people, it's like, yo, like, when God delivers you, he never promised that I would remove your temptation. That's right. But there are clearly promises that we, he will help you flee them. Um, and so I think our, our, our perception and definition of deliverance needs to change, and it needs to be, like, preached. Mm. <laughs> like, deliverance is like, you have the power over sin now. You've been delivered from being a slave to that thing, now you're a slave to righteousness. That's deliverance. Mm. Um, and I think that could help people endure a lot more. Amen. There's a lot of uh, stigma around this issue within the church with people who are LGBT or who experience same-sex attractions. That, and, and it's this paradigm that believes that people are like this because of something in their past. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and, and it's this idea honestly we cannot understand human sexuality without understanding biblical anthropology period we cannot if we do not and, and unfortunately i think in the church we we have a very shallow understanding of biblical anthropology what does it mean to be created image of god and yet we have a sinful nature so if we don't fully understand that we cannot understand human sexuality but f- i think for decades Evangelicals have bought into this. We've thrown out our understanding of biblical anthropology and placed the understanding that people are gay because of an absentee father, dominant mother, or abuse. That is why they're gay. That's not biblical. That's not biblical. Um, And that's adding to the gospel. We struggle with sin because we have a sinful nature. And I think... As evangelicals, we need to come back to the gospel and throw out all these things that are adding to the gospel and actually adding guilt not only to the struggler, but adding this immense guilt to parents. That's right. Because for decades, we've been telling parents that your children are gay because you didn't go to their soccer game. That, you know, maybe, you know, that you dropped them a little too hard when they were two or whatever it might be. No, mm-hmm. that's not why we struggle with sin. So I think that's one thing that I'm viewing right now or seeing in, right now in our, our ministry just at this time. We're still, there's kind of this resurgence of a, of a thought that somehow this is why people are gay. And, um, but that's, that's, that, that doesn't line up with the gospel. So is sexual orientation... Is that a concept that Christians ought to use at all? I don't think so. (laughs) Sexual orientation is a 19th century category. It came to us via um, German Romanticism, which was the first uh, time in the history of ideas that epistemology was attached to personal experience. And basically what that means, it was the first time in the history of ideas that how you feel would determine and legitimate how you should think. Uh, Sexual orientation was a a creation of Freud, and it was explicitly done because of a new anthropology and an anti-biblical anthropology that suggested that what separated humans from animals was a desire to have sex non-procreatively. And so when Freud established the category of sexual identity, of sexual orientation, it was explicitly done 
as a category of human definition. And what it occludes is the idea that you and I are soul-oriented, that what orients our being is not our sexuality, but that we are made in the image of God. And so the problem, now let me say that there is absolutely nothing, you know, inappropriate. In fact, one should always share with your brothers and sisters what you're struggling with. You know, that is a great gift. That is a great gift in a church community to say, this is what I am struggling with. Pray with me and help me to see my way clear. So by no means is my rejection of the category of sexual orientation a rejection of people who are struggling with various sexual desires. That's not the rejection. But what it has offered up is a false anthropology of the soul. And, you know, it, it's every, every, you know, college professor here knows, and every student here knows, you can't, you can't give a good answer to a bad question. And so if you start with the idea of a sexual orientation that is fixed, you are in some ways condemning a person to failing to see the, what Jackie just talked about, that all temptation will befall you. That does not mean it defines you. And one of the problems then later is it becomes so, uh, you know, such a significant um, attachment in, a, in the way a person is thinking that we create other false categories. There is nothing that should modify or define who we are as Christians. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and our struggles, by God's grace, do not define us. So when you say you don't, you don't like the, the category of sexual orientation, what you're not saying, I don't think, is that, well, gay and lesbian people just decide and choose no. to be uh, no, gay and no, lesbian. No, 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 no. It's more you're talking about no. identifying oneself in terms of, in terms of orientation. Right. You know? well, what, what do the rest of you think? How, how, would, how should we think about this? I think it's, it's I agree with I think most of what Rosaria just said, um, I, I'm not too hesitant over the word orientation. I think it, it can be useful to have something that describes particular patterns of temptation people tend to experience. Mm -hmm. So um, whether that's same-sex attraction or, or, or something else. Um, but there clearly are patterns and particular propensities we will have. They may and can shift over time. So, but it's useful to have some kind of way of describing that. I mean, I think uh, when we look, uh, there's going to be discussion about what words we use, and that's not going right. to end with this conference today. It's right. going to just it needs, it's going to continue to grow and um, and have this conversation. And I think it's healthy to have it. Um, there's also this this kind of understanding that somehow the biblical writers didn't understand sexual orientation, and uh, you know. That could possibly be if they didn't understand Freud's specific definition of sexual orientation or our modern concept of sexual orientation. But honestly, Paul understood a sinful orientation. And we all have a sinful orientation. And, and that is definitely something that Paul understood. So um, I, I don't know where exactly I am. I, I, I understand that there can be debate about, you know, and, and misunderstanding about the, the use of that word. But ultimately, I think we can all agree that all of us, no matter what we wrestle with, we all have a sinful orientation. We have a bent towards sin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about those who would say, and we have, we have several in the evangelical movement, who would describe themselves as gay Christians? They're, they're, 
they're celibate, they're chaste, they're not uh, actively involved in, in any uh, form of sexual immorality. They, they agree with the biblical teaching, church's teaching on sexuality and marriage, but they, they want to use that language of gay Christian for a variety of reasons. How should we respond to that? Is that a, a good thing? Is it something we ought to be concerned about or is it something that we ought to just... I don't like it. You don't like it? Why not? No. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm a blaspheming Christian. It's just... I don't know how one one title that represents that I glorify God can be coupled with a title that of sin that God hates. It's just it's just weird. I feel like I would want to be titled in a way that truly represents that God gets all of the glory from my life. Um, personally. I think that part of why people have felt the need to identify as gay Christian, though, is because we have overcodified the term sexual orientation. So I think that by allowing this term to be a truth teller, we have encouraged people to say, well, you know, I'm this kind of Christian. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the danger, the danger in that is that, it, you know, if sexual orientation you know, if I'm going to use it at all as a Christian, I'm going to see it as a vestige of the flesh. And there is not any part of any vestige of the flesh that you and I are going to carry with us to the new heaven and the new earth. When we die, and, you know, or if Christ returns first, uh, we do not, ha- we will not be shackled by that. So, so while I am on record for having many problems with the term gay Christian, I think that we need to be sensitive to the fact that we have driven brothers and sisters in Christ into a ghetto. Mm. And we have got to break down those walls. Now, that's a good point. I, I think, what would you say, one of the things that I see, and it's not just with this issue, I see it with all sorts of other things. I've been working in infertility issues and adoption orphan care issues for, for years and years. And one of the things I see happening in churches with infertile couples, for instance, is all the couples grappling with infertility are put in the infertility support group. And so they're all together. Uh, we were, we, I'm part of a previously infertile couple. And uh, so we were in one of those things. And you're with all of these people who all have the same difficulty at the same moment. And it's just hopeless, it looks like to you, because you're in this echo chamber of everyone with the same problem rather than putting and then once we had children all of a sudden all of these people are, oh yeah we were infertile for years and years well why didn't you tell us that five years ago you know we, we really could have had some hope from that why do you think it is that churches if they do ministry toward people who are same-sex attracted they tend to do it that way or at least a lot of churches do let's just group everybody who has uh, who has the the same struggle together and then just forget about them and and move on yeah, I think there needs to be uh, just healthier integration. And I mean, so this even applies to singles mm-hmm. um, and not just people, you know, we like to just put everything into our little categories. Okay, this is for, you know, young married groups. This is for, you know, newlyweds. This is for empty nesters. This is for singles. And mm-hmm. they l- lump all singles together because we're all the same. And then, but what we need to have is healthy integration. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Singles can learn from married folks. Married folks can learn from singles. Young can learn from old. And so we have to come back to, I, I think, what the church really ought to be. We're not segmented little parts. Mm-hmm. We are the whole. And so I, I'm not saying that it can be healthy because I, I bet you you were helped by some, some of those groups where it was just more focused. But we need to not just only do that. We have to have that healthy integration of and not just put people into this category, this group and... And I mean, and getting back to the, the gay Christian, I don't label as a gay Christian. I don't label as an ex-gay Christian. I don't label as a straight Christian. Uh, but with that said, um, I have good friends who, who do choose to label that. And I don't want to, I, I think there's this tendency to have this kind of us-them mentality yeah. as if they are just somehow just heathen. Mm-hmm. That they're just so kind of just bad they're living faithful to God. They're not in a gay relationship. And they're, they're actually, some of them are more conservative than my evangelical, some of my evangelical friends. So mm-hmm. I think we need to have healthy conversation, have healthy conversation where we disagree, but not treat it like you're bad. Because I, I think sometimes we have that tendency to do that. Mm. Yeah. In our, our church back in the UK, we, we do have a group that meets for Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction. Um, we deliberately don't meet often. Because actually we don't want that group to be people's kind of locus of where their fellowship is and mm. their main kind of mm-hmm. sharing. So people are, are part of a regular small group and we would meet maybe two, three times a year. Just because occasionally it's useful to encourage one another. Mm-hmm. What's helped you in your struggle over the last few months? And, and there's a level of hearing other people vocalize something you've struggled with is, is an encouragement because someone else gets that. Mm. So I think it's useful to have opportunities for people to share in that way as long as it's not the sort of their main experience of church their, their main small group hmm. can can you think of an example of a church uh and you might not have to name the church but that is really doing this well and, and kind of give some give some advice as to what that church is doing that's really really doing a good job with equipping people in in uh, in their congregations who may have come out of backgrounds that that some of you've come out of <laughs> may I may I may I tweak that question a bit? Sure you okay, can. Thank you. Far be it from me to not to let you tweak the question. Am, am I speaking? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, the Lord has given the ordinary means of grace to ordinary people, and the Lord has given the gospel to people who are broken and are inarticulate and are struggling with sin. The Lord has called us to hospitality when our houses are messy. The, the, I think the answer to the larger question is that we need to be willing to get close to people and that we need to not be so focused on church growth that we create ghettos of communities because of circumstances. Mm-hmm. If your church is so big that you don't know people, guess what? It's too big. There's such a thing. And, and so to, to not be so, you know, to, to be clear that, that what is really a great blessing to people is to be enfolded into each other's lives and not just the third Lord's Day of the month, you know, uh, uh, two o'clock. You know, people need to be integrated and interpolated into the daily rhythms of life. We are brothers and sisters. I sometimes wonder... If part of the challenge is that without intending to, we have pitted um, 
godly marriage against godly community. Hmm. And I think we have to be careful about that. I think we have to be careful about that, that, that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we will inherit a fellowship with, with each other in community that our godly marriages will not survive to see. So rather than be so focused on sociological categories, thinking that what, what would allow me to best identify with you is that we have shared the same struggle, let's focus on sharing the same risen Christ. And a small church is much more able to pull off friendship across diversity than these megachurches. First time that's ever been said at a Southern Baptist conference, I think. So. Okay. We make history here at the Earls. <laughs> can I answer that? Yeah. Um, I can only really speak from experience, but I know for me, um, what has helped me the most wasn't necessarily churches that had different small groups with people that share my temptations. It's simply been mm-hmm. a church that's really gospel-centered with gospel-centered people. Mm-hmm. Um, that has just been everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really mm-hmm. simple. Just people that love people, love God, and see the gospel as a means of changing everybody. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I would echo that. I think that means some of the churches that are handling the best may not even know that they're handling it mm. at all. Mm. They're just being church. Mm. That's yeah. a good point. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. I, I think the... I, I think the um, it, we have to be a, a, a group of believers where we're willing to be transparent. And um, the world celebrates coming out of the closet. And uh, honestly, I think there's something that we can learn from that. I think as the church, we all need to come out of the closet. Come out of the closet of our pornography addiction. Come out of our closet of, a gossip, you know, of gossiping. Come out of the closet, whatever addiction, take off those masks and let's just be real. That's the church. Mm-hmm. So I think when you have that, a church that fosters transparency, that's the best community to address this issue. Um, so I, I think that's really important. But also, what I've found in churches that address this issue well is a, is a community that embraces godly singleness. I don't think we're ready to address, um, pastorally respond well to the issue of sexuality until we reclaim godly singleness first. The reason is because if we're calling our brothers and sisters in Christ who struggle with same-sex attractions, resist those feelings. We're calling people in the gay community, do not be in a gay relationship. What does that mean for majority? Be single. And if that is true, do we have a healthy place for singles to thrive within Christian community? So, so I think that we, we really need to do that. Mm-hmm. Jackie, you were a teenager when you first started grappling with same-sex attractions by your testimony. Uh, what would you say to parents... Uh, who have maybe uh, maybe preteen or teenage uh, kids who come and say, "Mom and Dad, I think I'm I think I'm gay," or "Mom and Dad, I'm I'm experiencing uh, this particular temptation or this particular struggle." Uh, how should parents handle this? Do you think in a in a godly Christian way? Because I think we have a lot of parents. Certainly, we probably have a lot of parents here who have that situation going on right now. We certainly have a lot of parents back in the churches represented here who are dealing with that. How, how do they think that through? This is obvious, but I would, I would honestly first say pray um, because there's really no amount of wisdom that I could give because uh, I don't know your child. I don't know your situation. I don't know what they know, but God really truly does give wisdom according to the circumstance. Mm-hmm. So to really just pray for his guidance. But I didn't have a Christian mother, um, so I, 
it was just really just God's grace and goodness that drew me to him. But mm-hmm. I think um, dialogue is really good. Um, talking, asking questions, not necessarily, oh, you're gay, you're going to hell, that's not good, da, da, da. Like, duh, they know that. Especially if you already, if they grew up in church and were going to, like, you know, KAA or whatever. That's like a Christian camp for kids. Um, and stuff like, like they know that, but I think having a dialogue where it's just a, a real discussion to get to the point in the root, because a lot of times, often teenagers, especially girls and males, there are so many root lies underneath that where homosexuality is really just kind of like the leaf on like what well, is a root of a whole bunch of foolishness um, that needs to be discussed, whether it's a need for affirmation um, a desire to be wanted, to be loved. And I think just replacing what, that with the truth of God's word um, and willing to be patient and in God's timing, because just because you had that conversation doesn't mean they're going to convert tomorrow. It may take 20 years, but just just trust God and believe that he loves them more than you do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So freaking out is not the proper response. Freaking out, no. Yeah. 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 Or even facial expressions, body movements, like just being aware, like, you know, shaming is just the best way to get somebody to close back up mm. and not be free. So if they can feel free, that's really good, you know. Mm. So. They, they would probably have been terrified of, of opening up about it. So I think that the first response is not going to be Bible study in Romans 1 right now. Right. The first response is it's okay. Um, they, they need to know that your love for them is 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 not in any way kind of diminished by this this revelation. Um, so I, I think, and a lot of them will be terrified that this this may be it. Mm. So I think reassurance is one of the first things that needs to needs to happen. Mm. And some of the issues to talk through can come up later, but that will come out of the context of they now know that you're safe to talk to. So the first word that that you would have before anything else is you are my beloved child and with you I am well pleased. Yeah. yeah. You know what's interesting though? Is uh, I had a coworker ask me, he was like, Yeah, my cousin, she's forty, she just came out of the closet, what do I say? And I was like, Has she always been in sin? He was like, Yeah. I was like, So why are you just now saying something? Like, she's always been a sinner. <laughs> But all of a sudden now this big sin comes out and we want to address it. Yeah. And so it's like, man, if I've seen patterns of sin in their life from jump, I should have been jumping on that. Not just when homosexuality becomes a part of the picture. I just had a lady out in the hallway tell me uh, that she was ministering to a couple in their community. And the, the woman is uh, comes out of a Wiccan background. The man is uh, an atheist, but they're, they're living together and they started attending the church. And uh, they uh, just just as member, just as attenders, they're just uh, visiting, seeing what it's about. She's pregnant. And uh, so this lady said, let's throw a baby shower for her. And so there was a lady in the church that said, you cannot give her a baby shower because she's living in sin. And I love what this lady said. Yeah, she's engulfed in sin. And uh, every one of us is apart from Christ. Uh, so I think your point is exactly right. Sometimes we, we tend to think suddenly, oh, and now this person is a sinner. When we have Genesis 3 uh, to guide us along all the way through, and Romans 3 for that matter. What about, uh, Christopher, what about you had a, uh, and you talked about a little bit with your, with your mom. What would you say specifically to parents uh, that are trying to think through how to, how, to, how to talk to their kids who are going through this? Well, I think the last thing is to kick them out of the home. I think we hear stories, and I, I, you know, I don't think that that's the norm. 
uh, that sometimes culture wants to make evangelicals, that that is the norm, but that still happens. Um, mm-hmm. and, and of course, there's complexities usually around those type of situations. You know, might not, that might not be the only issue, but, but if there's a break in relationship, you might be the only person that is gospel-centered in their life. So there's a lot of patience. So you're that, saying, do not kick them out of the do home. Do not Absolutely. kick them out of the home. Yeah. Like my, my, I put them through a lot. <laughs> I put them through a lot. I pushed them away. I rejected them. And they just love me. Mm-hmm. And they put up with my junk. Mm-hmm. And um, they kept coming back. Um, I, you know, I, I wouldn't come home ever. Uh, one time I came home, it was, you know, this huge circuit party in Chicago and I came home high and, you know, I, I brought, you know, a friend and, and my mom gave me this 12 course meal <laughs> and she loved me. And, you know, so I, I think parents, we need, you know, parents, there's a tug of war going on. And if you push or let go, we're just pushing them into the world. Into the arms of embracing world. And they're going to embrace them. They're going to love them. But many of my gay friends are some of the most loving, kind people. And Christians, we got to show them what real love looks like. Hmm. We need to, you know, show them that we love you and we're going to point you to Jesus. We love you and we're going to show you what new life looks like in Jesus Christ. So, so I think for parents, you know, parents are like, well, well what should I say? Well, just wait. It's, it's, it's the, the spiritual gift of waiting, I call it. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you wait, you know, I'm reformed. So, you know, it's not until the holy God of the universe, until he invades into, you know, and, and just draws a person to himself, you know, we can say all the words that we want. We can kind of give all the best arguments. Um, but until that happens, um, you know, so, so we have to wait. And wait for that opportunity. Wait for that door to open. Keep cultivating the soil uh, of that relationship. And, and wait for uh, the door to open to then be able to, be able to share the gospel. You know, I think that applies across the board with parenting, uh, regardless of the issue. Because I find one of the, one of the, the big issues that I struggle with with my own children who are, who are you know, 13 and to 2 is just pride, my own pride. And I remember being one time in a, my uh, oldest two children we adopted and wrote a book about that, you know, calling people to orphan care. And uh, they were in, we were in the middle of a grocery store and they melted down and were throwing a temper tantrum and I'm trying to get them. And I'm looking around thinking, oh no, people are going to see this and say, this is what adopted kids do. We're not going to adopt. And so it's going to, as I have the whole global orphan crisis on my shoulders here. <laughs> uh, and then I realized, wait a minute. Uh, you know, first of all, these are two-year-olds. They throw fits. We're going to do this. And second of all, this is not about you. Uh, and I think that one of the problems that, that all of us in the church have as parents is that we think instead of let me love my child and minister to my child and be the presence of Christ to my child, it's how do I make sure that my child represents me and what it is that I'm about? And if we can just crucify that, then I think we can address a whole lot of questions, not just the ones we've been talking about today. Would you thank our panel and with us today? Thank you all.
Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. For more information about sexuality from a biblical worldview, visit ERLC.com.